Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Have you ever heard this quote? I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. If you've heard this quote before, you might attribute it to the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you would be right. She did say that a lot. But what you might not know is that Justice Ginsburg was, in fact, quoting 19th century abolitionist and women's rights advocate Sarah Grimke. Today, we will be reading the document that contains that quote, a series of letters from Sarah Grimke to fellow abolitionist Mary S. Parker in 1838. These letters were later published under the title Letters on the Equality of the Sexes and the Condition of Woman. And this book is known as the first sustained argument for equal rights written by a woman in the United States. Before we start, I want to welcome my reading partner today, Rebecca Archibald. Hi, Becca. Hi, Amy. I'm just so thankful that you're joining me today to talk about this book. So thanks for being here. So we want to talk a little bit about Sarah Grimke, who she was, and how she came to write these letters. Um, Becca and I will take turns kind of uh, talking through her bio. And Becca, why don't you start us off at the beginning of her life? Okay. So Sarah was born in South Carolina on November 26th in the year 1792. She was the sixth of 14 children. Her father was a rich planter, an attorney, and judge in South Carolina and at one point, Speaker of the South Carolina House of Representatives. So he was kind of a big deal. Sarah's early experiences with education shaped her future as a feminist and an abolitionist. Throughout her child, she was keenly aware of the inferiority of her education when compared to her brothers. While her brothers went off to Yale, she was educated by private tutors on subjects appropriate for young women of her class, including French, embroidery, painting with watercolors, and playing the harpsichord. Her father allowed Sarah to study geography, history, and mathematics from the books in his library and to read his law books. However, he drew the line at her learning Latin, which that just seemed hilarious to me. Like, why Latin? But that was the line for him. She was prevented from pursuing her dream of becoming an attorney because it was considered unwomanly. Sarah's mother, Mary, was a dedicated homemaker and an active member in the community. She was a leader in the Charleston's Ladies Benevolent Society and her many charitable activities kept her from developing close relationships with her children. Sarah developed a connection to the enslaved people working on her father's plantation, which greatly upset her parents. From the time she was 12 years old, she spent her Sunday afternoons secretly teaching Bible classes to the young slaves on the plantation. Her parents claimed that literacy would only make the slaves unhappy and rebellious, making them unfit for manual labor, and besides, this activity was illegal. Teaching enslaved people to read had been prohibited since 1740 in South Carolina. Sarah secretly taught Hetty, her personal enslaved girl, to read and write. Years afterwards, she reflected on the incident, and I just love this quote because it just really captures her spunk. She said, quote, I took an almost malicious satisfaction in teaching my little waiting maid at night when she was supposed to be occupied in combing and brushing my locks. The light was put out, the keyhole screened, and flat on our stomachs before the fire, with a spelling book under our eyes, we defied the laws of South Carolina. End quote. But when her father discovered this rebellion, he was furious and nearly had Hetty whipped. This made Sarah realize that breaking the rules in this way would be dangerous for Hetty and her other friends, so she stopped teaching them to read in fear that they would get in trouble. Interestingly, Sarah's father told her that if she had been a man, 
she would, quote, have made the greatest jurist in the country, unquote. Sarah believed her inability to get higher education was unfair. She also wondered at the behavior of her family and neighbors who encouraged slaves to be baptized, to attend worship services, but did not consider them true brothers and sisters in faith. So from a very young age, Sarah had an acute awareness of both gender and racial injustice. She believed that religion should take a more proactive role in improving the lives of those who suffered most. Her religious quest took her first to Presbyterianism. She converted in 1817. After moving to Philadelphia in 1821, she joined the Quakers, whom she had learned about in an earlier visit with her father. The Quakers were an egalitarian sect of Christianity with female ministers, and they were also outspoken critics of the practice of slavery, so she converted wholeheartedly. However, she encountered conflict within the Quaker community because she was too radical even for them. She encountered resistance when she tried to lead Quaker congregations and she protested church segregation by sitting in what was termed the colored section with the African-American members. Recounting her move from South Carolina to Pennsylvania, Sarah said, quote, As I left my native state on account of slavery and deserted the home of my fathers to escape the sound of the lash and the shriek of tortured victims, I would gladly bury in oblivion the recollection of those scenes with which I have been familiar. But this cannot be. They come over my memory like gory specters and implore me with resistless power in the name of a God of mercy, in the name of a crucified Savior, in the name of humanity, for the sake of the slaveholder as well as the slave, to bear witness to the horrors of the Southern prison house. That gives me chills to hear you read that, Becca. It's an amazing um, quote. It's an amazing quote. Okay, picking up um, in the spring of 1827, Sarah returned to Charleston. So she had been in the North and she went back to her home in the South to, quote, save her younger sister, Angelina, from the limitations of the South. Sarah was 35 at the time and Angelina was 22. So a much, much younger sister. Um, Angelina visited Sarah in Philadelphia from July to November of that same year and then returned to Charleston, committed to the Quaker faith. So she converted, I believe, in the North with Sarah. In November of 1829, Angelina joined her sister in Philadelphia full time. And for years, Angelina called Sarah mother, as Sarah was both her godmother and her primary caretaker. Sarah and Angelina began speaking out against slavery, and abolition leaders in New York and Boston recognized the unique possibilities presented by Sarah and Angelina as spokespersons for the cause because they had grown up on a slaveholding plantation. So the Grimkeys underwent training in New York City where they practiced the anti-slavery message before small, largely female audiences. Um, soon they were judged ready for larger things and were called to a series of lectures in the greater Boston area and in front of crowds ranging from several hundred to well over a thousand, the Grimkeys traveled from town to town, addressing in total more than 40,000 wow. um, people that were sometimes, you know, curious and supportive, but sometimes very hostile listeners and um, I've read accounts of like groups of almost mobs outside of churches where they were speaking, throwing rocks through the windows and yelling and, and picketing, but really growing almost violent. Sarah and Angelina became passionately evol uh, involved in the anti-slavery movement, and they 
uh, met the famous abolitionist Lucretia Mott. And it was around this time that Lucretia Mott let Sarah borrow her copy of Mary Wollstonecraft's book, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, uh, which had been written the year Sarah was born in 1792. Lucretia Mott apparently kept a copy of this book on her coffee table, and she lent it out to many men and women who would just come over to her house. Isn't that an amazing detail? I love that detail. <laughs> I love that too. I um, I just love how that brings it to life. These people all kind of knew each other and were connected to each other and working in real time in these in these causes. So anyway, as the, the sisters lectured on the abolition circuit along the East Coast, they, as we talked about, faced really harsh criticism and their public speeches were seen as unwomanly because they spoke to mixed gender audiences, which they called them promiscuous audiences at the time. And they also publicly debated men who disagreed with them about um, slavery. And this was just too much for the general public of 1837 because they were speaking in churches and other venues that frequently drew large hostile crowds of men, as I said, yelling and threatening them and throwing rocks through the windows. And um, Sarah and Angelina sometimes commented that they didn't know whether these rabidly angry protesters were more furious about their anti-slavery message or about the fact that they were women having the audacity to speak publicly to men about it. So on June 28, 1837, Reverend Nehemiah Adams wrote a pastoral letter of the General Association to the Congregational Churches under their care. This pastoral letter outlined the official stance of the clergy, or at least his view of the clergy in, the, in what, whatever the General Association was at the time, but about the abolitionist movement. So this letter said that first, such controversial subjects as abolitionism were not to be imposed on the faithful as fit matter for debate. Second, the letter warned ministers to avoid talking to or otherwise accommodating those who introduced such matters to their congregations. And finally, it attacked the involve involvement of women, especially women speakers, in matters of public controversy. Sarah had already begun a series of letters regarding women's rights, but when she read those letters, she was predictably infuriated. <laughs> she must have been irate. All oh, three of can those you points. imagine? Oh. I'm irate just hearing like the title of the letters and then reading them. I'm sure like my blood pressure was like through the roof. <laughs> Anyway, so Sarah had um, had already started writing these letters about women's rights. And so when she read those letters from from the reverend, she kind of switched gears and um, she started addressing him in those in those letters. So these letters were written between July 11th and October 20th in 1837. And she addressed these letters to the president of the Boston Anti-Slavery Society, Mary S. Parker. There are 15 letters in this compilation, and Becca and I have each chosen a couple of them to highlight. Becca, we'll start with letter one, and then we'll just, we'll just take turns sharing the main points from a couple of letters each. So take it away, Becca. Okay, letter one is titled The Original Equality of Woman. The quote that I'm starting with is her, Sarah speaking, of course, quote, I feel that I am venturing on nearly untrodden ground and that I shall advance arguments in opposition to a corrupt public opinion and to the perverted interpretation of holy writ, which has so universally obtained. But I am in search of truth, 
and no obstacle shall prevent my persecuting that search. So a few things that um, I think the main thing that jumped out to me on this is the untrodden ground, the equality of the sexes was not part of the social and cultural consciousness. So each time a woman thought or published it, it felt new and foreign. There was no internet, chat room, and even difficult really to chat with your neighbors to read of others' similar experiences or thoughts. Though many other women scattered around the country surely must have written similar frustrations to Sarah's in a journal somewhere, she didn't have access to that. While Sarah was certainly an early voice on the subject, the untrodden ground speaks also to the way it felt for her. Surely she must have felt very alone and approaching a landscape that was uncharted, kind of like a forest where no path had been cleared yet. Yeah, each woman feels like she's the first one to do it. Each woman feels like she's, just as you pointed out, Becca, that she's on untrodden ground because women have never had access to the writings of the women who came before them because they weren't published and they didn't get passed on. And so they didn't get to benefit the women who came after them. So, I mean, I I just think more women need to know about Sarah Grimke and read this book, honestly, if for no other reason than to just know they're not alone, right? I agree. And when you feel those epiphanies or those intense experiences, you feel alone. You feel like it's some it's personal and yet universal at the same time. Her diction also stands out to me. Her, you know, the use of the word corrupt and perverted, such strong and acrid language. Not only is it an effective rhetorical method because it immediately establishes the cultural and religious views of the day as decrepit, decaying, diseased, which sets up the truth as the antidote, but also allows, I mean, you just feel that you're wanting something to cure this disease. And she had so many enforcers of other versions of truth in her life, and it cost her so much to give up those enforcers in this search for truth. Okay, on to the next quote. Um, quote, in examining this important subject, I shall depend solely on the Bible to designate the sphere of women, because I believe almost everything that has been written on this subject has been the result of a misconception of the simple truths revealed in the scriptures, in consequence of the false translation of many passages of Holy Writ. My mind is entirely delivered from the superstitious reverence which is attached to the English version of the Bible. King James translators certainly were not inspired. I mean, I just love how bold she is. Um, her knowledge of languages helped her see that the accepted version of the Bible at the time, the King James Ver translation, was a translation rather than the actual word of God. And she's bold enough to call the King James translators not inspired. And I'm sure it was this type of language that made her viewed as a radical because that was what so many people relied on. And I just love her boldness and she's not even trying to like pad it. She just comes out and says, I believe they are not inspired. Absolutely. It's so powerful. Okay. The next quote that I like um, starts, quote, I therefore claim the original as my standard, believing that to have been inspired. And I also claim to judge for myself what is the meaning of the inspired writers, because I believe it to be the solemn duty of every individual to search the scriptures for themselves with the aid of the Holy Spirit and not be governed by the views of any man or set of men. Again, I just am in awe of Grimke and her confidence in herself and her interpretation. Oh, that more women and girls question the system, the text, rather than themselves. I think her confidence and audacity is just, it's stunning to me. Right. Just so bold. And, and I see her kind of like latching on to the democratic ideals that the country was founded on, 
of course, they ended up being interpreted just for, you know, the white men, but there's something so democratic about her establishing her duty and right to search the scriptures and come up with her own meaning. Amazing. Yeah, I agree. She's she's advocating for critical thinking, right? And for giving yourself the the authority and and the right to have your own filter and your own lens and your own conscience, right? Right. To to make moral choices for yourself and to question to question anything that comes your way. I love it. I do too. Okay, then in this letter she kind of goes through the whole creation step by step, you know, with her interpretation. So the first part that she goes into is the creation, quote, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. In all the sublime description of the creation of man, which is a generic term including man and woman, there is not one particle of difference intimated as existing between them. They are both made in the image of God. Dominion was given to both over every other creature, but not over each other. Created in perfect equality, they were expected to exercise the visurgence entrusted to them by their maker in harmony and love. I love how Grimke says that creation was already, quote, swarmed with animated beings, quote, capable of loving and obeying and looking up to him. Like man did not need another subservient companion or a little, you know, a puppy dog looking up and <laughs> adoring him. <laughs> like he, they, we needed two partners that had, you know, talents and minds and hearts free agents, you know, endowed with intellect to work together. Okay, so then on to the fall, quote, had Adam tenderly reproved his wife and endeavored to lead her to repentance instead of sharing in her guilt, I should be much more ready to accord to man that superiority, which he claims. They both fell from innocence and consequently from happiness, but not from equality. And then she ends um, near the end of the letter with this, quote, here then I plant myself. God created us equal. He created us free agents. He is our lawgiver, our king, and our judge. And to him alone is woman bound to be in subjection. And to him alone is she accountable for the use of those talents with which her heavenly father has entrusted her. One is her master, even Christ. I, In addition to reiterating the claim of equality here, I love how she owns being a free agent. She sets that off by dashes on both sides for emphasis. Dash, he created us free agents, then another dash. A free agent makes choices and answers and accepts the consequences. Adam was as accountable as his choice as was Eve. They were both free agents, and in the end, they both have to answer to God, with the only mediator being Christ. I so value Gramke claiming her right to her own revelation, her own thought, her own voice. And again, it feels so democratic. So great. And I, I just have to say, don't you feel like so many of these letters, I was like highlighting almost every paragraph we had. I There's know. So, I'll go on now to letter three. Okay, so letter three is the pastoral letter of the General Association of Congressional Ministers of the State of Massachusetts. So in this letter, Sarah writes to Mary Parker that in the first two letters, she had not yet seen the pastoral letter by the Reverend Nehemiah Adams, and now she's seen it. Um, and of course, this is the letter that we talked about that warned Christian congregations to not get their heads all twisted up by abolitionism and also not to listen to female speakers because that was inappropriate. So Sarah now has some responses for Reverend Nehemiah Adams. And um, 
Her first response is to point out that he is going to end up being on the wrong side of history, just like Cotton Mather on the topic of witchcraft. Sarah dives right into the letter, and so she writes to Mary about the letter. So here's the quote. It says, meaning the letter, We invite your attention to the dangers which at present seem to threaten the female character. That's in all caps, the female character, with widespread and permanent injury. Okay, now Sarah, that's the end of the quote from the Reverend, and Sarah responds by saying, quote, I rejoice that they have called the attention of my sex to this subject, because I believe if woman investigates it, she will soon discover that danger is impending, though from a totally different source from that which the association apprehends. Danger from those who, having long held the reins of usurped authority, are unwilling to permit us to fill that sphere which God created us to move in. End of quote. This is the argument that the default condition of all human beings is liberty. And so she argues that men have stolen that liberty. They've usurped it. And I think that's a stronger argument. And then um, the second point that I thought of is she points out that Reverend Adams and the other ministers think that they're protecting the female character from, quote, widespread and permanent injury. And she says, wow, thanks for worrying about us. That's so nice. (laughs) But actually, like she points out, actually, it's your own rules that are putting us in danger because they're not allowing us to achieve our potential and to be agents of our own lives. Okay, let's see. So the next quote that I wanted to pull is, quote, men and women were created equal. That's in all caps again, created equal. They are both moral and accountable beings, and whatever is right for man to do is right for woman. Jesus makes no distinction between the virtues that men should have and the virtues that women have. Christian virtues are Christian virtues, um, she says, and we should all be striving to cultivate them. So I thought that quote was just super important. Oh, I totally agree. And it's more evidence, you know, for Grimke that being a Christian doesn't mean just accepting norms especially norms that don't espouse equality or truth. Absolutely. And she just had total confidence that her cause was just and that God backed her up. Well, that's all I have for letter three. Um, So I think you have the next one. Okay. This is letter eight. Um, We're jumping all the way to letter eight. And this is called On the Condition of Women in the United States. Okay. In this next quote, Grimke is talking about marriage. Quote, for this purpose... More than for any other, I very believe that the majority of girls are trained. In most families, it is considered a matter of far more consequence to call a girl off from making a pie or a pudding than to interrupt her whilst engaged in her studies. All I complain of is that our education consists so almost exclusively in culinary and other manual operations. And I kind of had to laugh at this, one, because I love a good chocolate pudding and I can fully appreciate <laughs> you know, the emotional joy of that, but mostly because to my modern ear, it sounds silly to value food over intellect. Um, Okay, back to the text. Quote, they seldom think that men will be allured by intellectual acquirements because they find that where any mental superiority exists, a woman is generally shunned and regarded as stepping out of her, quote, appropriate sphere, end quote. Um, This gives a a window to me into the courage it took Grimke to step out of her, quote, appropriate spheres. She broke from her homeland of South Carolina, her family, her religion, her traditions, 
and you know left all of those fears she was willing to kind of give it all up and to re- rely on her own intellect her own heart and also her faith okay the last quote i wanted to focus on in this letter begins quote i cannot close this letter without saying a few words on the benefits to be derived by men as well as women from the opinions i advocate relative to the equality of the sexes many women are now supported in idleness and extravagance by the industry of their husbands, fathers, or brothers who are compelled to toil out their existence at the counting house or in the printing office or some other laborious occupation, while the wife and daughters and sisters take no part in the support of the family and appear to think that their sole business is to spend the hard-bought earnings of their male friends. I deeply regret such a state of things because I believe that if women felt their responsibility for the support of themselves, or for their families, it would add strength and dignity to their characters and teach them more true sympathy for their husbands than is now generally manifested, sympathy which would be exhibited by actions as well as words. Our brethren may reject my doctrine because it runs counter to common opinions and because it wounds their pride, but I believe they would be partakers of the benefit resulting from the equality of the sexes and would find that women, as their equal, was unspeakably more valuable than women as their inferior both as a moral and an intellectual being. And I just have to say, like, amen, like, hallelujah, I totally agree. I feel like this highlights the tragedy of forcing human beings, men and women, children into roles that have too much or too little power. You know, oppressors, ornaments, slaves. If you've ever been in a bully situation, even like a minor one on the playground, as the bully or the bystander or the bullied, all of the roles are deeply, you know, uncomfortable and traumatic and when a culture imposes these roles on people it brings out the worst in everyone because fear really steals the strength and the dignity that Grimke talks about I feel like the only role that really doesn't feel horrible in that situation is like an upstander someone who stands up and it is rare because it takes so much courage and then of course that's the role that Grimke takes yeah that's such a great analogy the bully on the playground and how it's traumatizing for everybody. (laughs) That's such a good point. Okay, I'll take the uh, the last quote before we wrap up in letter 15 is um, Grimke talking about women and um, they're asking men to help them with things. So she says, quote, I have blushed for my sex when I have heard of their entreating ministers to attend their associations and open them with prayer. The idea is inconceivable to me that Christian women can be engaged in doing God's work and yet cannot ask his blessing on their efforts, except through the lips of a man. I have known a whole town scoured to obtain a minister to open a female meeting, and their refusal to do so spoken of as quite a misfortune. Now, I am not glad that the ministers do wrong, but I am glad that my sisters have been sometimes compelled to act for themselves. It is exactly what they need to strengthen them and prepare them to act independently. I love the message of like, dig deep, right? <laughs> dig deep and figure out your the own answer to your question, your own solution to your problem. And when she says, I think this is exactly what girls and women need to strengthen them. If you can't, if they can't find a man to say that prayer for them, then it actually is good for you to think, oh, well, then what can I do about it? And is my prayer powerful enough? And is my intellect powerful enough? I think that's um, 
the empowering message that I definitely would want to give to girls. So yes, I love how she says sometimes compelled to act when they're compelled to act for themselves is exactly what they need to strengthen them to prepare them to act independently. Exactly. Exactly. Well, what a great discussion, Becca. There, as, as we said, there is so much more. And I just highly recommend listeners reading the whole thing. Um, it, it's just so chock full of wisdom and great examples. But as we wrap up, is there like one key point or a takeaway that you want to share, Becca? Uh, let's see. I mean, I think something that stood out for me was that at the end of every letter, all 15 letters, um, Grimke ends the letter, quote, thine in the bonds of womanhood, unquote. And while bonds could have been referring to her relationship with Parker, meaning their shared experience of being women, I initially read it as bondage. And each time I would read it at the end of the letter, it just felt heavier and heavier. It seemed to communicate the heaviness of her experience living in a, the bondage of a society where other human beings were traded and sold and her own choices being so restricted in helping that you know, that practice be abolished. Despite every reason to be cast down and broken by her own experience of living, you know, side by side of that, being traumatized, she used it to try to lift and better the world. I've noticed that I don't notice bonds or, you know, something that's keeping me back until I try to move and they restrict that movement. And Sarah's movement was trying to abolish slavery. She kept getting restricted in her efforts because she was a woman. She had such a unique perspective on slavery and both her and her sister, Angelina's courage, their determination, their perseverance. It just amazes me continually at how they were willing to just persevere to change the world. That's amazing. And I just, I mean, she's really a hero to me. The Grimke sisters shaking things up as women leaders also is what got the wheels in motion for the whole women's rights movement and the eventual passage of the 19th amendment as well. So I, I think of her like a prophet and a hero and I've loved spending time in her company as we've read these letters. So anyway, well, Becca, thank you again so very much for being here and doing this project with me. I'm so grateful. Thanks for sharing all of your amazing insights today. 